It's, uh, it's, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, our first panel, and, and I'd invite them to make their way onto the stage. Our first panel is American Institutions and Why They Matter. Uh, it, is, it, is, it is paneled by uh, James Walner of the R Street Institute, Mona Sharon of the Bulwark, and Bill Crystal of the Defending Democracy Institute. They really need no introduction. We thank them for being here, and I will hand it over to you. Thanks, Heath, and thanks, Dave, for leading us to the Pledge of Allegiance. Unlike at that other conference, we actually said the word indivisible uh, after, after under God, so that was, that was nice. Um, we, we've, we're living a little behind, as always happens in these conferences. I see Tom Nichols is very nervous that he'll be deprived of that moment here in the spotlight, and but we'll clear the way for him at, at, at soon after 10, and we'll have a sprightly discussion here, a little abbreviated perhaps, on uh, American institutions. And we do want to hear from uh, the next panels on Ukraine, General Hurtling and others, and so that actually is very important, And as, as is this panel. Mona Charon, James Wallen, need no introduction. Uh, 30 years ago, people used to get introductions because there was no Google, so you couldn't really just quickly find out who people are, but what's the point now? Mona, a wonderful friend and colleague, from the Bulwark, author of many books, formerly of National Review, uh, must read at the Bulwark and her podcast, Beg to Differ, James Walner, a leading expert on separation of powers, Congress, legislative process, uh, used to be at, uh, used to work on the Hill for various uh, Republicans, quite conservative Republicans, used to work in Heritage, um, and I'm Bill Crystal, I guess I should have said that at the beginning uh, of the Bulwark. I feel like all three of us, Moda used to be at National Review, James used to be at Heritage, I used to be at the Weekly Standard, uh, two of them are still going on, but they're not what they once were, and one of them was closed. So here we are, you know, um, without a, uh, somewhat without a country, but with actually a better country, honestly, in terms of you all and the group that uh, he's assembled and the broader group, which were a small slice, obviously. So we'll have brief remarks, five to 10 minutes. Uh, Mona, James, I'll say a few words, and then a, a quick discussion, a couple of questions, and uh, yield the floor to the next panel. So, Mona. Thank you, Bill. Uh, thanks to Heath Mayo and all of the volunteers who have put this together. Uh, it's really an incredibly impressive conference, and I would be attending even if I weren't asked to speak. So really, really happy to be here. You know, if you were to say um, we're going to have a conference about the importance of principles. Um, a lot of Americans would say, oh, that sounds like a really interesting, sexy topic, you know. But when I was listening to Heath, I was thinking that is where I live, you know, uh, that the importance of institutions is key to a thriving society. Um, though I can't resist quoting the great philosopher Marx, um, not Karl, but Groucho, um, who said, I have my principles, and if you don't like those, I have others. Uh, but, uh, but so what about, American, um, what about American institutions? They are under stress, and they were under stress even before um, Trump came on the scene. Trust in institutions has been in a steady decline for several decades, which is worrying. On the one hand, sometimes institutions behave in a way that merits lack of trust. Um, I would cite the Catholic Church, for example, uh, has had tremendous scandals 
And that is going to take a toll. So it isn't as if institutions are always perfect. Sometimes they behave very badly and deserve their um, lack of trust. But in general, institutions in a free society are the scaffolding that holds civil society together and the whole society. Institutions, and here I'm relying much on the work of Yuval Levin, who wrote a very good book a few years ago called The Time to Build, where he talks about institutions are character forming, right? You join an institution, whether it is a medical society or um, you know, the, the PTA, or you become a parent, you be, you're part of that institution, and you take on a role and you are expected to rise to the occasion, right? It's not just you as an individual. It's what, what are my obligations to the larger whole? Because an institution exists to bring out the best in us, to mold us toward a common purpose, and to make us behave better. And in order for institutions to work well, there have to be consequences for not living up to those standards. And in our worst performing institutions right now, you see that there are no consequences. For example, Fox News um, is uh, right now being revealed to be not a news organization in any um, usual understanding of that term, but a pure propaganda arm that was peddling lies. And yet there hasn't been a single firing. There hasn't been uh, any accountability other than perhaps in the courts, um, we'll see, um, for this gross, gross um, dereliction of their responsibilities. Look at Congress. Um, You know, in order for an institution to be deserving of respect, it has to uphold certain standards. It has to say, we in this institution live by certain values and uphold them. You get a, a, a George Santos who is elected, who violates every principle, and yet no consequences. And so there are real problems with institutions failing in their principal job, which is character formation, which is upholding standards, which is guiding people toward a common goal that they're all working toward. Um, so there have been failures of institutions. On the other side, um, I think it's really important, and I'm sure we'll get into this in the coming minutes, that we recognize that the, the, the um, relentless attack on institutions that we saw from Donald Trump, where he attacked every institution that could potentially be a, a rival power center to himself, the press, the intelligence agencies, the military, um, and ultimately our election system itself, um, that is unbelievably corrosive and uh, destructive, and we have to call it out and recognize it as the um, as the social poison that it really is. And I'll leave it there. Thank you. Thank you all. Thanks for having Good morning. I'm really heartened to see so many people here. This is so encouraging. And the other thing is encouraging is the picture of me in the, on the program, on the website. My wife texted to me on the, when I was getting on the plane. I was like, who is that guy? That was a, a long time ago. A long time ago. Um, but 
I, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak to you all today about institutions. And what I'm going to do is start kind of really big picture and then drill down. And I want to pick up on something that Heath said about institutions channeling our disagreement. That's a really important thing. And something that Mona said about how institutions, they shape us and they're somehow distinct from us. They are apart from us. And so I, what I want to do is to give you a, an idea of what the what institutions are and why I think that they are the secret, the secret sauce of American exceptionalism, if you will. Uh, I often tell people uh, when I teach classes or I give talks, number, I'll tell them two things. One, we have no rulers in America. There are no rulers. The majority doesn't rule. The minority doesn't rule. The majority not getting its way is not evidence that the minority is ruling and the, major and the minority not getting its way is not evidence that the majority is ruling. Every single one of us is a both a ruler and ruled. That's what self-government's all about. That's what makes us so special. We don't have rulers. Self-government is an activity. It's also really good because it helps us to get a better idea of what the truth, at least the civic truth, of what justice and the general good in James Madison's words in Federalist 51 is. Right? I talk about Socrates in the Agora where he's hanging out with his friends. And, you know, Socrates could be a real schmuck sometimes. People didn't always like him. But he would argue with people, and he would push them, and he would prod them, and he would poke them, and he would force them to articulate their views. And he did that for a reason, because all of us, the only thing deep down at bottom that makes us all equal is that we are all different. And we perceive the world through different senses, and we have different experiences that shape us. And so if we want to get an idea of that justice in the general good, if we want to get an idea of that reality in the round, we have to engage in discourse with people who are different from us, which is everybody, which is all of us. And institutions are the place where we do that. Institutions are a place. They are a venue. Yes, they can be norms. Yes, it can be the institution of marriage. It can be all these other things. But institutions, at least political institutions, are venues. They're places. The norms only have meaning in the context of those institutions. And they're really important. And so when I think about government, I think about forms of government. I don't think about production. I don't think about factories. I don't think about outcomes, although those are all certainly important. It's the form, the place where that argument, that discourse takes place. I brought up here, I was looking, uh, reading last night, and I came across this quote from Machiavelli. He's channeling Cicero. And he says that no man is so much raised on high by any of his acts as are those who have reformed republics and kingdoms with new laws and new institutions. After those who have been God, such men get the first praises. Because they're everything. Institutions are everything. And if we look at a place like, say, Congress, it's where we negotiate the non-negotiable. It's where we compromise. It's where we channel our disagreements. If we agree, if there is a consensus, we don't need Congress. We don't need a place to go and argue with each other. We don't need a marketplace to get a better idea because we already know the sun rises in the east. Fine, right? We don't have to do that. That's consensus. But when you deal with tough issues like negotiating the non-negotiable, right? That's what we do. That's what politics is all about. Self-government is about negotiating the non-negotiable. Think about that for a second. The issues that we think are the most important to us, that are ex existential in some respects, that threaten our very lives and our well-being and who we are and how we identify with ourselves. Those are the very issues where you have to step into the arena with those who you disagree with and you have to try to persuade 
you have to try to structure and set up the debate so that they feel pressured to agree with you, even if they're not persuaded. It is hard work. And that's why I'm so encouraged to see you all here today, because it's not just the hard work of the staffers or the members or the writers or the think tankers or anybody else. It's hard work of everybody. Because you aren't ruled. I'm not ruled. We're all in this together. That's what American self-government is all about. And I will you just close with this with Congress and the notion of why it's dysfunctional. That when you have an idea of institutions not as factories, but as forms of government, like our framers did, like the classical Greeks and Romans had, this very classical notion of what self-government is all about. When you have an idea of a republic, not a democracy, a republic, a place where people govern themselves, not where the people rule, right? you need to show up. And the big problem with Congress today is that, yeah, they show up, but they don't wake up in the morning, the members, and put their feet on the floor, look themselves in the mirror and say, I'm going to go to work today and I'm going to try to win. They're like, I'm going to go to work and I'm going to hope that somebody tells me that I'm going to win. I'm going to hope that the leaders tell me in a lunch that I'm going to win. I'm going to hope that the president agrees with me and tells me I'm going to win. I'm going to hope something happens that means that media is going to cover something that tells me I'm going to win. That's not how we got civil rights reform. That's not how we got the Civil Rights Act of 1964. That's not how we got the Voting Rights Act of 1965. That's not how we got any meaningful piece of legislation throughout our nation's history. It's hard work. It's hard work. And showing up in conferences like this is a big part of that hard work because institutions die for all intents and purposes. They disappear when they are no longer used for the purposes for which they were designed. And so if we're not using the House and Senate for the purposes, to adjudicate our disagreements, to serve as that crucible of conflict, to be the place where we negotiate our non-negotiable. If we don't use politics to do that, if we treat the people we disagree with as somehow bizarre carnival show clowns and we push them out, then that's not what Socrates is trying to do. That's not what self-government is all about. It doesn't mean you have to like each other. It doesn't mean we have to agree with one another. But our institutions are ultimately the place where we step into the arena with those with whom we disagree. And we can hopefully get to a point in the future where we can have respect for one another, right? I'm reminded of John Quincy Adams asking John C. Calhoun to be his pallbearer. Think about that for a second. Think about that. One of the biggest opponents of slavery asking the guy who argued for the moral good of slavery to serve as his pallbearer. Why? Or Daniel Webster going to John C. Calhoun's deathbed and saying, I'm going to give a speech the next day in the Senate. I want you to come. I'm going to to attack you. This is going to be great. You should come. And Calhoun feels bad because he's dying and he can't go. And then Webster shows up on the floor of the Senate and he starts giving this speech and Calhoun's like struggles in and he's, you know, Webster's talking like he's, you know, the ship of state and the turbulent seas and all the things that Webster does. And Calhoun, and he's like, I wish this gentleman from South Carolina was here. And Calhoun finally bangs his cane on the floor and he says, the gentleman from South Carolina is here. Probably killed him. Took all the energy he had. And you know what Webster does? He bows to him. And Calhoun bows back. And then Webster goes on and continues attacking him. <laughs> that kind of respect doesn't mean that we agree with each other. doesn't mean we have to accept one another's point of view. But we do have to acknowledge it. Because what I've learned in marriage, you've got to acknowledge each other. You've got to affirm one another's 
You got to affirm one another's views. You got to understand what the other person's seeing. And you have to let them know that you know what they're seeing. And then from that place, that's where we then begin to rebuild. That's where it happens. But we have to have a place for it to happen. And that, it, those things, that, those places, those venues, those are our institutions. And so as you go through this conference, and I love this conference, looking at this, the agenda, it's such a fabulous agenda. Just keep that view of an institution as a place where an activity takes place. And that activity, not the outcome, the activity is everything. Thank you. Well, those were both great. I'll just be brief. You know, I, I was thinking about this conference. I was in Europe. Uh, over the weekend and first couple of days of this week in Prague and Berlin, some informal non-governmental meetings that with some people in government over there to try to figure out how to better help Ukraine. Uh, Ukrainians, some Ukrainians were there too, how to uh, coordinate better with Europe, what messages they could help us deliver back here and vice versa. Anyway, um, and we were chatting after one of the meetings with uh, a Czech actually, uh, who had come back recently from Hungary. And Czechoslovakia has been through it. Czechoslovakia, shows how old I am. The Czech Republic. Uh, incidentally, speak about institutions, the separation of the Czech Republic, of Czechoslovakia into the Czech Republic and Slovakia 30 years ago, peaceful under the leadership of Havel. Uh, I think of that really, a peaceful divorce of two countries that decided, you know, would prefer to go, go it separately. They're pretty different uh, after the collapse of, of the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact. Um, that's itself a kind of tribute to what James was talking about. They got together. There was, there was a lot of people who thought, maybe correctly, incidentally, that you know, probably better off as one country of 15 million than one country of 10 or one of five. But uh, people wanted the divorce, and Havel, to his great credit, made it happen peacefully, amicably, and so forth. Anyway, some of this fellow from the Czech Republic had just come back from Hungary. And I said, how bad is it over there? And he said, it's bad. And I said, he's, I said you guys have just elected, which they did in the Czech Republic a pro-American, pro-freedom president to replace the previous president who was not good in terms of corruption and in terms of Putin sympathy and Orban sympathy. And he said, um, I think we've dodged the bullet here. The, the pro-American uh, Pavel, the uh, new president, won pretty easily, 58-42, very good sign, incidentally, for what's happening in Europe, that Orban is not the future, which I really do strongly believe, having been now in Europe a couple of times in the last month. Uh, but he said, you know, what struck me in Hungary is how lucky you are, how lucky you whether how, how good it is that you have 200 years plus of your institutions. They're solid, they're grounded, they can weather an awful lot of storms, an awful lot of demagoguery, an awful lot of mis malfunction and, and just uh, poor performance at times um, because they're pretty deeply embedded. And there are a lot of them. You know, there's the separation of powers at the federal level. There's a federal government, the states and localities. There's the private sector and the public sector. There's universities and the media and the bar and a lot of places that are obstacles to what Orban has been able to do in Hungary. And he said, you deserve, it's great that you have those institutions. And I said, we don't, my, we don't deserve credit for it. We do, our ancestors deserve credit for it. Mostly we've tried to strengthen some of them. We've weakened some of them probably, unfortunately. Uh, but it was really brought home to me, I mean, how fortunate we are to have this scaffolding infrastructure, whatever you want to call it, uh, and how terribly irresponsible it is to be cavalier about weakening and destroying it. How important it is also to reform these institutions so they work better and deserve people's allegiance. So I think the focus on institutions is, is very sound, very important. It is the great achievement of the, of the founders, right? I mean, this 
uh, ambition checking ambition, institutions set up in a complicated way, much more complicated than some of the simply simple cartoonish versions you hear sometimes about you know how the separation of powers works, how the relation of the different governments work, how much they expected civil society, as we now call it, but let's just say non-governmental institutions, what a key role they played. And then if you look at American history, one of the silliest things about the sort of Trump era is this kind of the founders, the founders, believe me, I wrote my PhD thesis on the founders, I, I like them, but like nothing has happened in, in the 200 plus years since then, but all kinds of other institutional developments, the military, civil military relations, the subordination to civilians, but also the keeping of order and within the military, both in the sense of obeying your superiors, but also having an ability to challenge them the way international institutions we've been able to set up work. And again, they have all kinds of problems, but as we've seen with Ukraine, NATO, for all that it was kind of cumbersome and has had, you know, did it still have relevance after 1989, turned out to be pretty important and a pretty good umbrella onto which, under which to get things done over the last year. Up to 30 seconds on NATO, which is an interesting, slightly odd case study. A lot of what's happened in Ukraine has not gone through Brussels, has not gone through NATO. You don't hear much about big meetings, right, in Brussels. It's, it's different nations that are part of NATO cooperating on things they are best able to cooperate on. So the Czechs and Poles cooperate on a ton of stuff, refugees, but also arms to, to the Ukrainians. They didn't wait for everyone else to sign off. They didn't wait for the Germans necessarily. They let them know, but they didn't make it a NATO decision. They made it a bilateral decision, but in the context of NATO and with the ability to urge, that urge NATO countries to go along, which is a pretty good model, I think, for how you can have an institutional structure that doesn't stifle you know, ambition or action by individual members. There's one thing I sort of noticed when people were talking about what they had done, uh, some of these European countries, to help Ukraine. Civil society is full of institutions. We shouldn't forget that. And incidentally, this is kind of an institution building. The bulwark is an institution. You know, uh, public accountability projects is an institution. Principles first is an institution. Some of them are more formal. Some of them are more informal. Some of them are volunteer. Some of them are, have some paid staff. But that's what a healthy society, a healthy democracy, a healthy free society produces. So I think we're trying to do in practice what we also talk about uh, in theory. Character is important. You know, I mean, we should forget the Federalist Papers, so famous, Federalist 51, I think. James signed Federalist 10. Those are the big institutional papers, you know. But Federalist 55, Madison says at the end, you know, none of this would work if we don't have a basic decency of character and of responsibility among the citizenry. And institutions can help foster that. They can help uh, press in a way some of the worst instincts. Uh, we shouldn't, but being, being focused on institutions doesn't mean that character doesn't matter, that culture doesn't matter. What it does mean is that the most concrete thing we can latch onto, uh, even when sometimes character isn't perfect and culture is problematic or divided, uh, is our institutions. So I, I think it's a very good focus for this conference. And as I say, I think we should all feel good to be part of an attempt to build kind of institution, one institution, but many institutions. So many of you are involved in different efforts at the federal and state level and the civic level, educational level, to really try to strengthen our institutions so we can go forward in good shape into the uh, 21st century. Uh, let me stop. Why don't we have a brief discussion up here? I might just skip the Q&A for this very first session. Uh, there'll be plenty of time for that over the next day and a half. But let me, I'm going to sit down, but I'll, I'll ask Mona and James, maybe just, I mean, particular institutions that should be 
that you're most worried about or that you're most pleased by, in a sense, what surprised you on the upside over the last uh, five, 10 years or really concerned you going forward? I'd be curious. The institution of the microphone. Does that work? Um, so uh, one thing I would stress, um, Bill, is um, how much, and you and I have mem personal memories of this, um, the U.S. military's uh, reputation back in the 1970s and, and the beginning of the 80s was very, very damaged. Um, the Vietnam experience and so forth had left a lot of Americans very, very dubious about the military. And there is an example of an institution that really looked inside itself and decided it needed serious reforms. There were endless numbers of commissions and, and whatever, and, but they got serious. And one of the things that they did is they improved their training. They improved the feedback so that, um, and other people who are more expert at this can probably speak more knowledgeably, but my understanding is that they got more feedback about what was happening, you know, at the training level um, and the chain of command and so forth. And they reemphasized, of course, the bedrock American principle that the the military is um, subordinate to um, to the uh, civilian leadership and so on. But in any event, when you look at surveys now, you will find that uh, institution that respect for institutions is declining, as I said earlier. But the military has gone way up, and the uh, my sense is that people recognize that when you go into the military, you're expected to be honest, you're expected to be honorable, you're you have an ethic of service. Um, the fact that it's all volunteer probably helps with that. But it's in, they inculcate a culture in the American military of honor and service and selflessness. And people respect that. People understand that this is not just about you as an individual. You give up some of your individuality for the sake of the institution and that strengthens the institution. And in the end, it also strengthens you. So point being, institutions can dive and then revive. Yeah, and I think the um, that's a, a great point I would, I would agree. And it also highlights, I think, a, a big problem in the institutional space. I mean, the military, we don't ask the military to make decisions about, say, abortion policy for a reason, right? I mean, there's, it's because of not only because it's the military, but also precisely because of that hierarchical structure, because of the way it is set up. And But we ask Congress to do that, our representatives, right? Well, in theory, I guess today we often ask the court. It's a whole different issue. Um, but, but if you look at Congress, if you look down the road, it's really, really, really really bad maybe really really bad a couple more reallys tell us what you really think about that here yeah. you know i've spent most of my time working in the senate at, at senior levels and over the past you know since say 2004ish or so and in that time the senate i think has gone through one of the most radical uh, institutional developments that i've seen i also study the senate i'm a professor at clemson university as well and I, it's gone through one of the most radical transformations that I've ever seen, experienced, witnessed, read about, heard about, or anything else. It's astonishing how different the Senate is today from what it was when I first got there. And this isn't just nostalgia. I mean, the numbers bear it out. Uh, this, the, it's not a place where an activity of any significance happens in any organic sense. 
So in that sense, I think it's really bad because ultimately the, the, that's what legitimizes policy is the back and forth that takes place on Capitol Hill inside those institutions. That's what makes it legitimate. That's what gets buy-in. That's why when uh, Richard Russell stands up after the 1964 Civil Rights Act passes and he says, well, it's the law of the land now. And I urge my constituents, I, he tried to fight it. He did, wanted to defeat it. He didn't like it. But once it's the law of the land, once you have an opportunity to debate it, to defeat it, and you lose, then, you know, it is what it is. If it's done via executive order, judicial fiat, something else, it's a different story. Then it's easier to keep that kind of conspiratorial type uh, perspective alive. I think the House, though, ironically, and I'll be short here, is I, I look at the House, though, and I'm a little bit more heartened. And not just because of the recent you know, developments in, in the House and everything else. It's more about just you. there seems to be a lot more of uh, rank-and-file members trying, waking up in the morning, saying, how can I be more effective? Where's my leverage? How can I use it? And that goes for Chip Roy. It goes for AOC. It goes for the squad. It goes for the Freedom Caucus and anybody and anybody in between. Because you need all those people to ultimately change the institution, to reform it and make it healthy again. And, and if you look at our institutions like Congress, institutional reform typically comes from the outliers creating pressure. It doesn't come from the center in our, throughout our history. And I think that's an important lesson for us to, to kind of keep in mind. You know, since that's good. I mean, since Simona mentioned the military, I'll, I'll say one thing I just picked up. This trip's fresh in my mind, obviously. Uh, I hadn't quite focused on as much as I should have. Uh, this is very relevant to the next panel with Mark Hurtling, who's very involved in what I'm about to say. The degree to which Ukraine deserves huge credit for what they're doing and fighting, and most of that is all that's to their credit. But there was much more training of the Ukrainian military by NATO, and led by us basically, uh, over the last, well, since 2014, 2015, so over the last, what, six, seven years, than people realized. That happened beneath the radar. It was not in the headlines here. It wasn't secret. I don't think there was anything, you know, whose was money was appropriated uh, for it, uh, uh, as it should be, and by Congress. But a lot of people outside the headlines, under President Obama, who wasn't eager to get too involved there, and President Trump, who certainly wasn't eager to help Ukrainians against a possible threat from Putin's Russia, a lot of people worked hard to get money into appropriations bills to make sure that if something happened, there would be a better trained Ukraine than, than not. A lot of people in our military and in allied militaries spent a lot of time working on this, and it wasn't always the easiest thing to do to coordinate. One can only imagine all these different militaries and to figure out where to train them and so forth, and the Poles had to get along with the, the Germans. And one funny thing about being in Europe is you discover, you know, these countries still have issues with each other for all the happiness of the EU. Like the Poles cannot, according to the Germans, I the Poles cannot be getting, we're in the middle of a war. The Poles are behaving terrifically well, I mean, in terms of refugees and aid to Ukraine. The Germans are behaving well, better than people realize, also have a million refugees in Germany. Czech Republic has half a million refugees in a country of nine million people. Totally fine. No backlash, no problems. The kids are in school. Uh, people are working, uh, treated well. It's really pretty impressive. Not because they're not super wealthy countries either. In any case, uh, <laughs> apparently the Poles can't resist beginning every meeting with the Germans. Uh, say, you know, we would like those reparations that we think we deserve from World War II. I mean, literally, this is a huge issue in the Polish election campaign in 2023. Which party is tougher on the Germans than on insisting on reparations? Which, incidentally, like, that was kind of a long time ago, and they got some reparations, and whatever the abstract merits, like, we're fighting kind of an important war here, and maybe you could put this on the back burner. And <laughs> Nope. Every meeting has to begin. Anyway, so they have their own issues. But 
the U.S. military, under the umbrella of NATO, it's a good instance of how important the, uh, these institutions are, was able, Ukraine wasn't, unfortunately, part of NATO, but we had a sort of relationship with it after 2014 uh, and made a difference. And that's nothing you see about, read about in headlines. It was done legally and appropriately, but it wasn't a big issue that presidents took credit for. In fact, they, uh, if anything, might have not been thrilled about it, but, you know, it was appropriated by Congress, so they, they signed the bills and that was that. And it's a good, a good case study of how institutions can work beneath the surface in ways that are really uh, important, it turns out, when you have a real crisis, you know, and you didn't kind of realize. I think that's true of so many institutions here. The bar uh, under Trump, the degree to which whatever your, one's problems with the imperial judiciary and the courts and law, lawyers and legalism, and there's too much of it and all that, having a robust legal system where people really could insist, wait a second, you can't just do this, you know, you can't just decide one night that if Congress has okayed uh, pre, uh, transgender uh, people being in the military, there's a process by which you could reverse that decision, presumably. Maybe it would be constitutional. Uh, probably would be. But but you can't just wake up one morning and tweet and change it. We have a system within the military. We have courts. I mean, the degree to which that rule of law is embedded in these institutions uh, also also strikes me. So whatever that's worth, I mean, again, this is just so much so reinforced on this trip by the importance of, of institutions and that we're lucky to have the ones we have. We're lucky to have people who then take a leadership role because it's not clear that you can't just snap your fingers and you know say, okay, train them. You know, it required an awful lot of hardworking people doing things that weren't glamorous to, to make that to make that happen. Mona, uh, can I? Yeah, I'd like to just add a point to that. Um, you know, uh, one of the things that Trump did when he tried to discredit uh, institutions is they're all corrupt. They're all corrupt. You know, and that, and that has a certain resonance with some some audiences, but. People who look at Congress, for example, um, have noted that Congress is at its best right now, even despite all the dysfunction and the, the sharp polarization, it's at its best when it's doing things out of the public eye. So, you know, uh, an issue that is not particularly relevant to the top news stations will be resolved quickly and quietly. Or um, the intelligence committees who will operate completely outside you know, the lens of television cameras. Everyone loves serving on the intelligence committees because there's no grandstanding. There's no performing for the cameras. They can actually get things done. Um, and it's very rewarding for the members. And so it's a lesson that um, as much as we talk about the importance of transparency, you can have too much transparency, too. And that can impede the effect of institutions, that they have to have some freedom to maneuver, freedom to give and take without being immediately, um, you know, ch immediately demonized um, on, uh, on Twitter. And so, you know, that, that might be something to think about when it comes to possible reforms of institutions that are suffering, like the Congress. This what best... Let me just ask one question. You can fold in your, answer, your thoughts on Modus Combat too. Maybe your final question, actually. You, you've both been involved in what's called the conservative movement, which itself was a set of institutions and, and, and uh, people, but uh, many institutions uh, over decades. I mean, say a word, each of you, maybe begin with James, and also say whatever you were going to say before about Modus Combat, about it as an institutional structure. I mean, Buckley was so concerned to protect the institutions of the conservative movement against true craziness, against the John Birch Society, against anti-Semitism, because he saw that you just can't be, you can't 
function well as an institution if there are no boundaries, no guardrails. But uh, you guys have been through this and, and have the scars to show for, for it. So I'm just curious what you think about it. Is it is it salvageable? Is it what's the current state, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, I think some. And Mona, your point's well taken. Some some decisions are always going to be made behind closed doors. Of course, that's always been the case. The Constitutional Convention, the Federal Convention, of that hot, sweaty summer of 1787, behind closed doors, right? That's always going to happen. I think the problem is when all of the decisions and all of the most important, consequential, controversial decisions are made behind closed doors. That begins to undermine at least political institutions like Congress. Because if we think about it, how do you change the status quo? The status quo is powerful because it's like the people who won the last debate. Right? So they're going to be in the control of the committees. They're going to be in control of leadership. They're going to have the votes in Congress. And the only way, and this goes for liberals and it goes for conservatives alike, the only way you're going to change that is if you change the relative balance of power. And the only way you're going to do that is if you go outside of Congress. You play an outside game. You message. You bring the outside in. You perform, right? That's the way you, it destabilizes the status quo. It's how we end the patronage system with and, and defeat Roscoe Conkling. It's how the civil rights movement defeats uh, James Eastland and the Judiciary Committee chairman from Mississippi, right? He wants civil rights to be decided behind closed doors. But ultimately, you know, it, it's going to produce the same outcome. That's why he wants it to be done that way. And proponents of civil rights don't want it to be done that way because they want to get it to a different arena. They want it on the Senate floor where they can get more attention and get more coverage. Martin Luther King, Dr. King, nonviolent direct action. He wants this performative element to come to the fore so that when you open the newspaper in Topeka, Kansas, and you see a, a woman and a man and a little girl with a, with a dog right in front of their face with a fire hose turned on them, that you get a certain reaction. That's what he wants. And that ultimately allows you to then destabilize that, that, that balance of power between you and the status quo. And so I think that's a very vital thing that throughout our nation's history, that's what we've done. That's how we constantly have change. And changing institutions from the inside is a brutal, brutal thing. As anyone who's been through this knows, whether it's Congress, whether it's a think tank or anything else in between, it's very hard and very difficult and rarely successful to change institutions. But it, it also was key to the success of the civil rights but, legislation. But they are, yes. Because it, of the external pressure, Kennedy and Johnson were able to change. Yeah, you need that inside-outside thing. And then the Civil Rights Act of 64 had a very robust inside element. It had they, Everett Dirksen and behind closed doors negotiating this bill. So it's not one or the other. I think they kind of go hand in hand. It's about a process that plays out over time. And as for the conservative movement, and I'll be brief, I think it's more about, you know, I, I don't, it's almost like we're all Marxists now, in a sense. That, you know, and I say that not, not speak, to be- Speak for yourself on that. Not to be provocative, but it's in how we think about politics. When you think about politics as production and your outcome means everything, it's the end, then any means that you need to get to that end becomes okay. Then you rationalize departures from the rules. We can blow up the filibuster because there are judges where they did it. That's, yeah, that's, that's basically Marx's production-oriented thinking. That's treating Congress like a factory, not like a political institution. That's problematic. And when I look right now at, say, the conservative movement writ large, I see the other side of the coin to a lot of what they criticize on the, on the other side. In the, in the uh, whatever we call it, the liberal movement, the woke movement, I don't know, uh, what, whatever that may be. And one of the things I love, and I'll just, you know, just to plug the place where I work, R Street, what I love about this fabulous organization is that it is so non-doctrinaire. It's not dogmatic. They, and and that, that presents challenges of its own, of course, but it's not, it's not the other side of the coin. 
And you can't defeat the other side of the coin when you are the other side of the coin. That's and well I think said. that's an important thing to keep in mind. You become the problem just as much as the other side of the coin. And ultimately, American self-government needs people who look at it as not some giant factory to be controlled so that we can produce outcomes, not something to be ruled where our version of the truth ultimately prevails. And I think that's, that's, it's, it's messy. It's ugly. It's hard work. It's unsettling to say no one's in charge. That's really hard, but it's critical. It's absolutely critical for the success of our Republic. Thanks, James. Mona, final word. Uh, wow. The big topic, uh, the, the, uh, conservative institutions. Um, it seems to me that um, we have seen over the last eight years um, a number of major conservative institutions kind of collapse. Uh, they became uh, basically devoted, I'm thinking of places like the Heritage Foundation, uh, Fox News, um, many others, um, many conservative publications caved to Trumpism lost their identity as being conservatives first or Republican second and got into basically fan service. And, um, and they lost tremendous credibility, although not necessarily, well, and in some cases, market share, in other cases, not so much. Some, sometimes it was good for their bottom line. But I would say there is not reason to despair because that tendency that Tocqueville so famously wrote about of Americans to create new institutions all the time is still very much in evidence. And so this very conference, you know, is a new institution springing up by Americans who were responding to a moment. We have the bulwark, we have the dispatch, we have um, principles first, we have our street, we, and there are other institutions that have not caved. So um, the American Enterprise Institute, I think, has has kept its equilibrium um, for the most part during this this time, um, and so it's a it's a very mixed picture. There are a lot of people who um, showed that their um, principles, if they ever held them, were they held them very lightly. But um, but we have seen an enormous upwelling of new institutions that may in the end take their place. Thank you, Mona. Thank you, James. Thank you, Ak.